Amen. Thank you so much. Uh, in view of time, we're going to just skip our next song. So thank you so much for musicians. We will sing again in a minute. If you're uh, new here visiting us, uh, we're so glad to have you with us on Remembrance Sunday. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'll be speaking on that passage that Vivian just read. Uh, let me tell you a little bit of personal history to do with this building. 23 years ago in August, I stood with a young lady at the far end of this building in front of a crowd of people. And she was wearing a white dress that I'd never seen before. And I was wearing the most expensive suit I've ever bought. We said some things to each other that day that we had never said before or since. Like this. I, name, take you, name, to be my wife slash husband. To have and to hold from this day forward. For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health. To, uh, excuse me, to love and to cherish. Till death us do part according to God's holy law. In the presence of God I make this vow. Now what on earth were we doing? What were we doing? We were getting married. You know, in the, the, in the Bible's language, we were making a covenant. We were making a covenant. Uh, the book of Malachi, the Italian prophet at the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, chapter 2, verse 14, describes the wife of your youth. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. So what is a covenant? Simply put, it's an agreement between two or more people a covenant is a legal term, and it's used in various contexts. For example, house purchasing. Anyone here live on Somerset Avenue? I was looking at our, uh, a copy of the land registry recently. I hadn't actually looked at it properly before. And I discovered that my house is under a restrictive covenant. Quote, a transfer of the land in this title and other land dated 3rd of August 1932 between Charles Moon and Leslie Henry Ransom contains covenants, details of which are set out in the schedule of restrictive covenants here too. Now, if you live in Somerset Avenue, you may not know about these restrictive covenants, but they're legally binding. Do you know that means you don't own your own home? Just kidding. <laughs> Five people get up and run out. No, I think it's okay. Now, it's essential for us to understand that in the Bible, God relates to his people through an arrangement called a covenant, an agreement. It is a binding agreement, and these covenants, therefore, are more formal and more binding than a merely emotional relationship, but they're also more personal and more loving and intimate than a mere formal contract. So the best example we can think of is the covenant of marriage, because it has both aspects. It has a very formal aspect, and a very, very personal, intimate aspect. The glory of Christian marriage is that two people are giving themselves to each other completely for life. It's a pretty big deal, isn't it? It's not like a business deal. The word partner just isn't big enough for it. It's a total change of your loyalty, your allegiance, your status. Your future is now bound together with that person. You say, forsaking all others. 
In such a context, vows are given and received. All that I am, I share with you. All that I have, I give to you. Now, the relationship came first, didn't it? There was a relationship that developed over some time. Now, vows are exchanged. The vows reflect the nature of that relationship. It is going to be exclusive. It's going to be committed. It's going to be lifelong. And it brings about a whole new state of affairs. Certain things are now benefits are received, and there are certain limitations. I couldn't decide to keep my flat and charge Melissa rent, could I, after promising all that I am I give to you. You know, rent went out the window. She also started painting paint samples on the walls of a flat, but that's another story. Melissa couldn't suddenly decide that she was going to marry George Clooney a few weeks later, could she? It's too late, love. But hey, if you're married to me, why, why would you need gorgeous George? Did she say amen? I didn't hear that. <laughs> now, so the covenant, we get the idea, it has binding commitments. Now, what are the benefits of such a covenant? Wow. As the years gone by, have gone by, I see more and more what those benefits really are. I think sometimes the things you fall in love with uh, in your 20s are really, they're great, but they're actually kind of temporary. And, and the things that really matter grow and grow and grow. She really is my better half. She really is the person who brings out the best in me. And that's because she's a person who sees my ugliness and my sin and still loves me, but calls it out and challenges it. And that helps me to change. She is a person who brings life into my life every day. Now, those are covenant benefits. That's a covenant we can all relate to, isn't it? And we need that familiar picture when we turn to Genesis chapter 17, page 17, because these events happened over 4,000 years ago in a very different world. It's the world called the ancient Near East. It's so remote. What's this all about? How, how on earth can we relate to it? What is all this about circumcision? Goodness me, some of you visitors are thinking, what is going on in this place? Don't worry, no one's going to ask you to be circumcised. It's a very different time. Almighty God bound himself in a covenant to an elderly couple and all their descendants. Crucial point. This passage then teaches us some really powerful truths, some really important things about God, which we need to know, and about ourselves, and we should live in relationship to that God. I want to show you today that the way God related to Abram and Sarah was, has actually got everything to do with our lives. Anyone here remembers the Manchester band, The Smiths, will remember a great tune called Hang the DJ. In that song, Morrissey, the lead singer, sang, Hang the DJ because the music that he constantly plays says nothing to me about my life. Now, this passage might look like it said nothing to you about your life, but it really does. It says everything to you and me. You're going to learn three things here. Firstly, he's a God of amazing promises. He's a God of amazing promises. Secondly, he's a God of extraordinary provision. Not only promises he provides. And thirdly, he's a God who calls us to walk in his presence. To live before him. 
You get those three things. There's three Ps hidden in there if you want to look for them. A, a, a God of amazing promises, extraordinary provision, and calls us to walk in his presence. Firstly, a God of amazing promises. Now, this story about Abraham didn't just begin here in chapter 17. It began back in chapter 11 and 12. God called, came and spoke to this man who was pretty obscure, nothing special about him. He was actually quite well on in years. And he was 75, and God said, I'm going to call you. You get up and go, and I'm going to make you into this great nation with a great name. You're going to live in this land in the West. I'm going to protect you and give you my presence And through you, every family in the whole world ultimately will be blessed. Extraordinary range of promises to this obscure individual. And Abram believed, trusted, and he stepped out in faith. And he went on a journey that changed his life and the world forever. That was chapter 12. And so we've been following that story for the last uh, few weeks. We've seen the ups and downs of it. And now this chapter 17 is is like a watershed moment, a big turning point. God's promises to Abram have been unfolded bit by bit. They've been gradually building up and have become more detailed and precise. Back in chapter 12, it was like um, the the sort of television people watched the coronation on in the 50s. You know, it's like black and white, small screen. You kind of see it, it's a little bit vague. And then as you got further on, chapter 15, it's it's now, it's it's like a 1990s big TV with that huge thing that was on the back of it, for those of you who can remember, they were impossible to lift. And then, now we get in chapter 17, we've got a 62-inch widescreen, high-definition picture of the promises, right? So it's getting clearer and clearer, and richer and richer, and more and more bright and vivid, and we're now we're going, wow, I never thought it could look like that. Whatever next? Filled out, repeated in a a glorious crescendo. This chapter is nearly, is full of a long divine speech. Just think about that. Most people in the world think, you know, what what would it be like to meet God? If God spoke, what would he say? You know, all those kind of questions. And here we have the living God, the one who made the universe, comes to an old man in person, and speaks to him, and makes him promises, and gives him reassurance. And these promises were not just for Abraham's benefit, they were for all of us. They were to change the world. We live under the umbrella of this blessing right now. Chapter 12, 1 to 3, promised three amazing things to the old man, a land, descendants, and a covenant relationship. And here in chapter 17, once again they are repeated, God keeps saying, I'm going to do it. Hang in there, Abraham. Don't give up. You will get the land. Chapter 17, verse 8. There it is. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner. I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. So he explicitly identifies the land of Canaan. It was a region whose boundaries were quite, quite clearly defined politically. It corresponds roughly to the modern state of Israel uh, with some other land, the part of southern Syria and Lebanon. Abraham had migrated to Canaan, but he was living there as a migrant, a nomad traveling from place to place, living in tents. We might say he was on a temporary visa, but he didn't have permanent residence. And in these words, God himself grants the land 
to this man and his descendants as a permanent holding. Now, that's, that's better than the, the British land registry. When God gives you the boundary and the map, you know you've got it, don't you? No one's going to take your house away. It was a good land. Later on, it's described as a land flowing with milk and honey. A friend of mine, who's a very clever man, actually, he's a scientist in Manchester, told me that when he was a kid, he thought, how could it flow with milk and honey? Wouldn't it be wet all the time? It's like, it meant there was a lot of milk and honey. There's this good food and sweetness. It was fertile and beautiful. Every family had their own vine and olive tree, a good home. And that is the key. It's a place for Abraham and his family and descendants to call their own. And we all, don't you know the call of what that word says to your heart? Home. Home at last. The longing for a home. We know that. So there's land. There's also descendants. Look at verse 5 and 6. Um, no longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. Now, this is amazing because it dwarfs stuff that's come so far. So here's a guy who is actually childless. His wife's barren and um, they're, they're well on in years. And, and so God keeps saying, you're going to become a nation. And he's thinking, a nation? You know, one would be a start. And here God says, no, 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 not just a nation, a multitude of nations. We're now on the big screen. A multitude of nations. A people who will rule in the world. Not just slaves. Kings will come from you. Rulers. So there's going to be descendants. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then also there's this covenant relationship. And verses 7 to 8 tell us for the first time that God establishes his promise and his relationship not just with one man, which he could have done, but also with every one of his descendants after him, in order to be your God and your descendants' God. And by the way, this is still a promise, I believe, that God holds the, the Jewish people in, as a, in a very special regard in his heart. And if you want to read in the, the New Testament, Paul, in Romans chapter 9 to 11, makes a long, logical and passionate argument that God has not abandoned his historic people, that at some future point, Israel will turn to the Messiah, Jesus, and they will be, bring, be brought into Jesus. And now to mark these great promises, names are changed. I wonder if you've ever had a name change. There's a man in this church who was known by a certain name, and he led a pretty wild lifestyle, and he struggled with addiction for a long time. And he, uh, God spoke to him very clearly and called him out of a crack house and sent him home, repentant. And he said to me, I changed my name that day, and I'm not called by that name anymore. My current name is the name I'm known by. And that's what happens to these people. Abram and Sarai have their names changed to Abraham, which is the name we know him by, and Sarah. They are variants in that language, that dialect. In Abram's case, it says in the footnote, it probably means father of many or father of nations. And Sarah's name means princess. But what this means is that from now on, every time someone says their name or they hear their name or they introduce themselves, they're reminded of the amazing promises of God because God was the one that gave them that name, not their parents. 
So this is the first thing that we see about God here, friends. He is the God of amazing promises. Can you see that? His promises are absolutely astonishing. You couldn't make it up. And I wonder, I just wonder, if this God of amazing promises actually resonates with your picture of God today. Does it? I wonder if you think of God as being a God of amazing promises, a passionate, warm, loving, generous Father who just wants to know you and pour out his blessings on you. Is that what you think God is like? I know we don't all think that. Some of us think of God as a cold, angry, passive-aggressive taskmaster. And that you have to try and prize any blessing out of his cold, stingy little hands. So a lot of us think of God. Imagine a, a dad is coming up to Christmas. You know the, the store Hamley's, the toy shop on Regent Street? I used to work near there. It is, a, a, it is an unbelievable shop. It's just magical. You can go in there and get lost, come out, you've spent half your salary. <laughs> Did that one year, didn't do it again. Hamleys came back with a box of brio about this big on the train. Look what I got. Imagine going around Hamleys taking your your child, taking your daughter. Come on, love, we're going to go to Hamleys. Really, Dad? Really? Yeah, yeah, love, yeah, come on. So you get on the train, you go up to Waterloo, and you get on the tube, Oxford Circus, and you go, and you're on Regent Street, and Hamleys, the front of it is just beautiful. All the lights, you know, they've got the lights up there. And you go in and they've just, everyone there, everyone there is just a great salesperson and they're doing things in the air and making stuff fly and all the rest of it. And you're showing around, you're going around with your daughter and there's dad saying, look at that, love, look at that, amazing. Wouldn't you like that? Oh, yeah, dad, I'd love that, I'd love that. What about that? Look at that. Wouldn't you like that, love? Yeah, oh, dad, I'd love that. And after half an hour, the dad takes the daughter into Costa Coffee and sits down and says, darling, I just want you to know you will never have any of that. <laughs> You're all laughing, you cruel people. What would that do to the girl? Oh, wouldn't it just crush her? Just mess her up? What? Oh, why did you bring me here then? What kind of a dad are you? That is the image of God that some of you have. He doesn't really want you to be happy. But he wants to show you stuff and make sure you don't get it. Here's what you could have won. Take it away. And that view of God is a lie. And it is a lie that has come in since the beginning of human history. It's a lie straight from the devil. That God doesn't really want you to be flourishing and happy and thriving and and, and joyful. He doesn't really want that. God is is not up there looking down on you and and loving you. God is actually, the lie says, God is, is surveilling your life and finding ways to find fault with you and trip you up. Whereas actually the picture of the Bible is he's a God who makes these amazing promises. He's a loving Father. He wants the best for you. And he knows the best for you. He knows the best for us. And you, anyone here who's a parent, or you know, you've all, we were all children once, we know there are things that as a child you don't understand, and maybe you chafe against it. But when you mature, you realize that was the best for me. We were so hot on road safety with our kids. I was probably over the top. 
uh, I just was always imagining, oh, my days. If they, but the kid wants to be free. Hey, I'm running around. I'm having a great time. Oh, here's, two, here's a gap between two parked cards. I'll run through it. Bang. You don't want to have to make one mistake on road safety, do you? Now, to a child, it's restriction. Road safety, what's that about? <laughs> As an adult, you realize road safety is the good. It was good. We knew the best for you there. And one side of this um, loving father is this, these amazing promises that he makes for Abraham. And bear in mind, it's not just for him. It's for all of us to bless the whole world. This world is broken. And it's hurting. And it's dark. God is not going to sit by idly and just let that continue. He has a plan. He is doing something about it. He does not want more world wars. What a day we're remembering the, 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 the terrible, dreadful sacrifice, the appalling suffering of two world wars within living memory of some of you, World War II. God is doing something about it. Amen? And these promises to this elderly couple are just the start of that. Now, the wonderful thing about this God is that he doesn't just make amazing promises. He also gives extraordinary provision. Second point, extraordinary provision. He's a God who provides. He makes extraordinary provision, even though Abraham has faltered and he's been very up and down and sometimes he's wobbled. God is reliable. He's faithful to what he said. He continues to stand patiently by Abraham to remind him of the promises. And in the, in the dry times, in the shaky times, God has showed up and underlined his word of promise and highlighted it and reiterated it and confirmed it and assured Abraham. And each time he adds more detail to that astonishing, beautiful vision of a glorious future. But you know, there's still a serious problem here with the plan. It's that they haven't had the baby that they were promised. You remember what we think about last week? They promised this to have a baby 25 years before. And they got the room ready. And they got the crib. And they got the changing mat. And they got the car seat. And as somebody pointed out to me last week, they got the Moses basket. Only at this point it was called a basket. Thank you to the historian Zach Evans for that observation. <laughs> so they've been waiting and waiting for waiting 25 years. Some of you haven't even been alive 25 years. Still wearing short trousers. And now they're very old. Uh, another 13 years has passed since the last chapter. My days. We went from chapter 16 to 17. Whoop, 13 years have gone by. Whoop, it's a bit fast. And so in the last chapter, we saw they took matters into their own hands. They came up with plan B. Plan B was something that was acceptable in their culture. It was that a wealthy woman could provide an heir through a surrogate. In this case, a servant woman in the household. They tried it, and the servant conceived. Her name was Hagar, and it led to an absolute hornet's nest of problems. Everyone got hurt. Ouch. Wish we hadn't done plan B. And God made it very clear that that was not how this was going to happen. So the boy who was born, Ishmael, still lived in the house. He was cared for and provided for, but he was not to be the promised heir. God will do it his way in his timing. And God now underlines how that provision will be made. A child is coming through Sarah. 
Sarah's 90. And just to underline it, her name gets changed too. And chapter 17, 15, and 16 shows she and Abraham are in this together. She too will become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. It's obviously this is the same promise. It's a provision. But to be quite honest, it is an unbelievable provision, isn't it? She's 90, he's 100. Physically, this is impossible, isn't it? I mean, I'm no biologist, but I'm fairly confident of that fact. She's a long way past the change. The ancient people weren't stupid, you know. Abraham's 100, she's 90. And so in verse 17, Abraham falls on his face again. And look what it says. He laughed. <laughs> really? He laughed and he said to himself, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Now this is not the laughter of joy, is it? It's the laughter of unbelief, skepticism. And you know what? That's just what we were thinking. Bible's in the real world. Yet this provision is somehow God's way of keeping the promise. Not probably our way, but God's way. Why do it this way? Why take so long? The answer is, I don't know. But we do know that God provides his way in his time. And that is key for you and me to understand as we walk through our lives. Our lives can be so frustrating, can't they? Our lives can be so depressing. And that's probably come even more into play with the pandemic in the last few years. Our lives just feel stuck at a dead end. Our lives feel absurd. It's just like, what is the point of this? Things happen to us. Lord, why? Why is this happening to me? Why is this taking so long? We don't know the answer. And here's the thing. God doesn't always give you the answer right away. He doesn't always give you the answer right away. But he does always give you himself. He does always give you himself. And that's the third point. He calls us to walk in his presence. He's the God of amazing promises. He's the God of extraordinary provision. And he calls us to walk in his presence. God promises to be with us, never leave us. And that means the biggest change for our lives, even bigger than getting married. Look again at verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Now remember how we started off with that picture of getting married and the covenant. And remember that in the, in the covenant, both parties make a commitment. Both make promises. And God has promised, I will be your God and I will give you this land and these descendants and so on. What's Abraham's side of the covenant? Here it is. He has to walk before God faithfully and be blameless. What does that mean? It means to live in God's presence all the time. It means to serve God faithfully with the whole of your life, not just Sunday morning. The Bible sums up God's requirements on us very simply. Jesus said this. He said the whole law can be summed up in two 
The greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your strength and with all your soul and with all your mind. Love. And he said the second command is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And your neighbor is anybody in your sphere of influence, not just the people on the house on either side. Sorry. (laughs) It would be a bit easy if it was only two houses, wouldn't it? Love your neighbor, anyone in your sphere of influence, as yourself. Love, the law of love. And here is, so that's all he's got to do, is walk before God faithfully and love God and love his neighbor. That's, that's, God's requirements are quite simple, if you think about it. It's not rocket science, is it? Now, in this case, there is a sign given. And we are familiar with signs, aren't we? Many of us are wearing a sign Today, it's a sign, it's a poppy. The poppies that grew in Flanders fields uh, after the conflict in the First World War were adopted as a sign of remembrance. Now, that poppy itself doesn't really mean anything, but you know what it means, don't you? That's why we have them every year. It's a reminder to remind us of the sacrifice and cost that others paid for us to be free. And the other, a covenant, uh, by the way, wearing a poppy isn't a covenant thing, but it's an example of a sign. But in a, in a marriage, a sign is given. It's a sign of a ring. I've got this great wedding ring here made by a wonderful man in this church. And uh, I've had that ring for 23 years. Once lost it down the back of a freezer when I was reaching for some sausages on a church weekend away. Came out and the ring had gone. Didn't realize and only some month, weeks later was the ring recovered. <laughs> ring. What's the point of it? It's... Okay, the ring doesn't mean much, but actually in the context, it's a sign of the relationship, the covenant that you're in. And the sign that they've got here is, to our mind, is quite a strange one. It's the sign of circumcision, physical circumcision, for all males in the community. It does seem very odd to us, although we know circumcision uh, is still practiced all around the world, still practiced by the Jewish, members of the Jewish faith and other peoples, and it was, an, it was a practice that was known in, in the neighbors of this uh, country, Israel, back at that time. It seems odd to us, um, but I just want to point out, by the way, that uh, it is not a harmful practice. Some critics have said that, but male circumcision has been shown to reduce risk of contracting various diseases, and the process uh, was described by Sydney Medical School's Professor Brian Morris as about as effective and safe as childhood vaccination. So the only long-term effect circumcision seems to have on people is increase their chance of winning a Nobel Prize. True. Said Rabbi Harold Kushner, he was right. I'm not saying, by the way, if you get circumcised tomorrow, you're going to win a Nobel Prize, but you you knew that. Where were we? Circumcision. What's it really about? It's a permanent reminder in the body at the man's most intimate level, and it's lifelong, it's not temporary, and it reminds the man that he belonged to God. It's given to an eight-day-old baby boy, so a week old, he's in the community. And maybe there's a hint in this sign, this symbol that for us to belong to God, we have to change. Something about us has to change. 
profoundly. Now, it's really interesting here, Abraham's response. You know, he was doubting, wasn't he, about the, the whole miracle baby thing. But his response is very striking. Uh, God gives him the command, and look at verse 23. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household, and so on and so forth. And it feels, it feels a little bit much, too much detail here, but the point is being made very clearly. He was totally obedient to what God had asked him. Immediate obedience, resolution. I will do it now, Lord. I don't really understand this, but I'm going to do it in spite of his doubts. Now, we've thought today about the God of amazing promises and extraordinary provision who calls us to walk in his presence. And I want to close by thinking, asking, how committed to you is this God? Four thousand years, sorry, two thousand, two and a half thousand years after this event, there was another promise of a miracle baby. You think a 90-year-old mother is impossible? How about a virgin birth? And through that young, unmarried, teenage pregnancy, that virgin birth, a miracle baby was born, another promised one, a one who was far greater than Isaac. His name was Yeshua. We say Jesus. It means God saves. They said they were called to call his name Emmanuel. That means God with us. With us. And he came to live the life we should have lived and die the death that we deserved. And he lived and walked with people and he does so still today. And Jesus Christ shows us how committed God is to us. And Jesus, you know, he doesn't just want your vote. He wants your heart. When Jesus calls people to follow him, he doesn't mean on Twitter. It's about whole life walking before, in his presence, keeping that law of love. And if you live that life, Jesus says, I will give you power to do it by the presence of the Holy Spirit who will come and live in you and help you, comfort you, and sanctify you through and through. Jesus Christ says to you and me, walk before me and be blameless. And all these amazing promises and all this extraordinary provision will come into your life too. So as we close, what lengths has God gone to in order to make a covenant relationship with you? Jesus went to the cross and he signed your adoption papers in his blood. What did it cost him? What is the sign of this new covenant? It is the sign of baptism. Baptism into water to show we've gone from death to life. We've been washed and cleaned. We've been saved through judgment. So if you've not received the sign of baptism yet, but you're following and walking with Jesus, you should be baptized. Come and speak to me, please, after the service. What has God promised you? Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Why might God be making you wait longer than you would like? 
We don't know all the answers, but we notice with Abraham how he grew, how he changed, how he matured through waiting. Could it be that God is doing that for you too? What does God require of you this week, this time tomorrow, to walk before him and be blameless? It's the Holy Spirit gently pointing out one thing in your life at the moment that you need to bring into the light. I'm going to pause on that question and then pray. Then we'll sing again. It's the Holy Spirit gently pointing out one thing this week that you need to bring into the light. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us in power. Open our eyes to see where you want us to walk before you and be blameless. Strengthen us in our resolve if we're waiting long and wearily. Give us patience if we're frustrated. Give us joy if we're depressed. May we find our peace in you. Amen.